Good morning, City Church. It's good to see everyone here this morning. Uh, my name is David Richter, and I'm the pastor here at City Church East Nashville, and it is a great joy for us to be able to gather together as God's people, uh, to be able to hear his word. Uh, it's not just that I'm preaching, but God actually promises that he will be with us as we gather together as people to actually speak through us so that we can learn and grow and be molded into his people uh, in this time and this place. And so this is a great honor uh, for us to be able to be together. It's an honor for me. And I'm not just saying that because it may not be a great honor for you to hear me, uh, but uh, it is a great honor for us to be able to participate in what's going on here today. And so I'm excited for this opportunity. Uh, last week, if you've been around with us, uh, you'll know that we started a brand new series that's going to actually take us through most of the summer, and that is in the book of Philippians. And we started that series out in a little bit of an odd way. We didn't start by looking at Philippians. We started by actually looking at the book of Acts, uh, Acts 16, where uh, we get the report in the scriptures of how the Apostle Paul actually planted the church in Philippi uh, and what that meant and the foundations of what that meant and what it looked like. Um, and so now we are actually going to actually dive into the letter itself. And it is a letter, and it's important for us to kind of uh, understand that. Uh, uh, the book of Philippians is a letter. It's one of many letters that the Apostle Paul wrote. In fact, the epistles that you see in the Scripture are all letters after the Gospels. Uh, so these are letters that Paul or Peter or some of the other apostles actually wrote to different churches usually. Uh, and so you can see that. And this letter specifically... Um, is a letter uh, in which the Apostle Paul is doing two particular things in the reasoning behind why he wrote this letter. The first is uh, that it's a thank you letter for a gift that the people in the church of Philippi had sent to him. Uh, during the course of Paul's ministry, he had been arrested and actually taken to Rome and imprisoned there. Uh, Sam, my son Sam and I, a couple, several years ago uh, in our family, when our kids turned 13, we tried to take a big trip uh, with one of the parents in order to just kind of uh, solidify that kind of becoming a teenager kind of thing and enjoy that. And for Sam and I, we found a really cheap trip to go to Rome. And so we went to Rome. We wanted to see a soccer game. Uh, and so it was the first time that I'd ever been in Italy, and we actually got to see a lot of the sights of what happened there. And one of the really cool things that we got to see when we were there is Sam and I went to uh, this prison that's known as the Mamertine Prison. And it is the prison where we believe, and a lot of things in Rome, you really don't know if that actually is what happened. There's all kinds of things there, like, you know, Mary's toenail in the church and that kind of stuff. But, uh, but we are actually pretty sure that this is the prison that both Peter and Paul were imprisoned in. Um, and it was so cool to see it, but it would not have been cool to be in prison there, right? Um, the Romans were very good at, you know, torture. Uh, they were good at imprisoning people. Uh, they were good at keeping order, and it wasn't keeping order out of the kindness of their heart. It was keeping order by power and force. And so he was imprisoned in this Mamertine prison. Um, and what we're told is that when the Christians in Philippi heard about Paul's imprisonment, uh, they collected a financial gift and sent it by one of their own, a man named uh, Ephroditus, uh, uh, to deliver to Paul. And this letter is that thank you letter from him to them for this gift that they have sent. But that's not all. Uh, there's also another reason that the Apostle Paul has written this letter that he will begin to unpack over the next couple of weeks as we look in. And that's that Paul is aware that the Philippian Christians, while not in prison themselves, uh, had also been experiencing a great deal of suffering and persecution for their faith. Therefore, the letter is meant to be a letter of encouragement to them in the midst of their suffering. And he seeks to do so by proclaiming to them 
the gospel of Jesus Christ and how it teaches us the possibility of having joy in the midst of suffering. Now, let's be honest. That seems ridiculous, doesn't it? It seems outrageous in our culture to think that you can have joy in the midst of suffering, that you can actually have joy at the same time as suffering is going on in your life. And a lot of what we deal with in our culture is this kind of inability to kind of reconcile those things together. In fact, I read an article several years ago um, by a man whose wife uh, was Japanese, uh, and he was actually living in California when the great tsunami that hit northern Japan and killed, you know, multiples, you know, tens of thousands of people. And he talked about the kind of the disconnect that he felt during that time as he watched this happening across the ocean and his wife was there and involved. And the reality of how people there dealt with suffering as opposed to how we in the United States dealt with suffering. And what he said was, is that they dealt with it so much better there than, they, than we dealt with it here. In fact, he went on to argue that we are the worst culture in the history of the world at dealing with suffering. And that wasn't a platitude. I believe that that's actually true. And a lot of this has to do with we have no ability to reconcile this idea of what it is to live our lives with both joy and suffering at the same time. And so this letter is all about that. In fact, it's called the epistle of joy for that very reason. And it calls us to reconcile these things. It calls us to understand these things, but not in just a kind of, a, a kind of an abstract sense. It calls us to recognize them in the context of the gospel. And so that's what I want us to begin to do today. So let's pray. Let's ask the Lord to be with us. Let's ask him to help us, to open our hearts and minds and guide us so that we can know the sweet reality of what joy in the midst of suffering is all about. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to open up your word. We thank you for the opportunity to uh, dig in, to dive in, to try to understand. Um, and Lord, we, we cry out to you this morning. We ask that you would remember your promises to us, that you would pour your Holy Spirit out upon us, that you would open our hearts and our minds, give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that you would convict us where we need to be convicted, Lord, and that you would encourage us where we need to be encouraged. And that you would drive us, Lord, to the gospel, which is the only place that we know that we can find hope in this world. And through that, that you would transform us in our community for your glory. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the reason I decided to dive into uh, this book, this epistle of joy during this time, is because the reality is, is that it's been, a, it's been a tough couple of years, right? I think we can all kind of acknowledge that. It's been a hard few years for most of us. Uh, and I could use a little joy, and I'm expecting that you guys could use a little joy as well. And it's good for us to think about this, especially in the time that we're in. We're finishing up our revisioning series. We're going to be doing some implementation stuff over the summer. And then we're really going to be thinking about what it looks like to kind of relaunch the church in many ways. Uh, we've been a church for many years, but what does that look like? And we need the joy of the gospel in order to guide us and drive us in that. But it's also good to not just ignore the things in our past, ignore the sufferings that we've been through. We've been through a global pandemic. Hundreds of millions of people around the world have been sick and died. Uh, there have been massive migrations in the United States. I'm a part of that migration. I moved from Boston to here, but that is happening all over the country. People are shifting jobs, shifting their situations, shifting their social realities, uh, moving all over the place. It's one of the largest migrations in the history of our country, and it's going on right now. 
There's massive political instability, deeply divided on a number of different levels, right? There's massive social and cultural unrest. You can think about the killing of George Floyd. You can think about Breonna Taylor. You can think about what happened in Buffalo uh, this weekend. Horrible things that are driving and exposing the cracks that we have within our culture, exposing our differences and our divides. And you also are seeing an incredible uptick in our culture of fear and anxiety and depression on historic levels that we've actually never seen before. Many families are buckling under the weight of this in our culture. Uh, Many kids are feeling isolated and alone and separated. Many homes are breaking under the weight. Many single people are feeling increasingly separated from one another and hopeless in the midst of the world that we live in right now. And all of this begs the question, how in the world can we find real joy and real hope in the midst of the suffering that we know we are experiencing now? And that's what I want us to dive into this morning. I actually want to do this kind of in a reverse order. Normally, I kind of start off by unpacking, but I want us to think deeply, first of all, about what is joy? What is the definition of joy, and how do we actually, are we supposed to think about that? And then I want us to move toward what Paul actually says in this passage, and how we can learn from him, and how we actually embody the things that he is trying to proclaim to us in this passage in our lives. So what is joy? Well, if you look up the word joy in the dictionary, what you'll find is that joy is an emotion or feeling of great happiness or elation that comes as a result of possessing your desires, right? Uh, If you love pizza, and you have a favorite pizza place in the neighborhood, and you go to that favorite pizza place, and you have great pizza, you get the thing that you are desiring, and you feel joy, right? Uh, my daughter Lucy loves dogs with a, with a bright passion that you will not imagine, right? And so whenever she sees a dog, in fact, one of the fun things that we do as we drive, I drive her to school is when we see dogs, we always are talking about the dogs, because she gets so excited. Um, When she is able to be around a dog or to pet a dog or interact with a dog, she feels incredible joy, incredible joy. If you meet someone and fall in love and you have this incredible desire uh, to be in a relationship, to be in marriage with someone, you meet that person, you fall in love, you get married, you feel that incredible joy that comes along with that. Joy is desire fulfillment in this way. It's the feeling you get when you are able to possess the deep longings of your heart And this makes sense, right? But here's the problem. Here's the rub. What do you do when the circumstances arise in your life? Like, let's just say, we'll throw something out there, like a global pandemic, right? That take the object of your desire or your ability to possess that away from you and steal your joy. What do you do then? I would argue that this is one of the great questions of our culture. It's one of the great questions of our lives right now. What do you do when you cannot possess the thing that you believe you most deeply desire in this world? Well, the reality of this is that our culture is actually in the midst of kind of the struggle, in the midst of this great question. We've come up with a number of strategies in order to try to answer this question and to bring ourselves the joy that we're so deeply longing for. And there are three of them that I want to actually unpack and kind of look at this morning. And the first one is this, and it's a simple one. We just try to avoid suffering altogether. We just avoid it. According to our culture, suffering is the opposite of joy. You need to know that. 
It is how we codify our understanding of joy. Suffering is the exact polar opposite of joy. The two cannot coexist together. Therefore, the best way to retain joy, to have joy in this world, is to simply do everything in our power to avoid it and avoid having uh, the kind of the things that go along with it. And the truth is, is, man, we've really gotten good at this. We have technology, we have kind of health plans, we have all kinds of things that we do in our life through science and healthcare uh, to make our lives better, to make them more efficient, to make them more comfortable, to make them more easy, right? We are better at avoiding suffering probably than any other culture in the history of the world. We're really, really good at it. And we do other things as well we, uh, that are a little bit darker. Uh, we avoid relationships that we don't like. We tend to take our old people and tuck them away in corners in nursing homes where we don't really have to deal with them and we don't have to watch them get old and die. Right? We have a number of these things that we are so afraid of actually dealing with suffering, dealing with the realities of this, that we try to just tuck it away or sweep it under the rug and hide away from it. We avoid it at all costs. But here's the problem. While we may be able to avoid suffering for the time, even though we're really good at it, we cannot ultimately escape it. If you live long enough, everyone eventually suffers. Everyone gets sick, everyone gets old. Even Tom Brady, it was a big joke in, in Boston when I lived there, right? You know, this guy seems like he's never gonna get old, he's never gonna quit football, but the reality is, is he himself will get old someday. We all get old in this way. And everyone eventually dies. And in death, everything that you've ever had or loved or desired in this world will be taken away from you. It is unavoidable. It is the most sure thing that you could know. And so it leads us to this kind of problem. We can't just avoid it. It's impossible. And so because of that, we've, we've taken on a second strategy of how to deal with suffering in our lives, and that is self-empowerment. If we can't avoid suffering, what we need to do is to overcome it by looking inside ourselves and finding the inner strength and the confidence to pull ourselves up and to take control of the circumstances that we have in our lives. Now, this sounds very inspiring, doesn't it? You know, in fact, it is the foundation of every kind of pep talk and inspirational speech that you've probably ever heard in this world. And make no mistake, it can lead to some really beautiful and bold um, uh, kind of ways of dealing with the world, positive outcomes that come. In verse 14 in our passage, you know, Paul tells us here that most of the brothers, having become inspired by Paul's imprisonment, right, uh, became much more bold to speak out in the world. And this is awesome. This is amazing. You know, the reality is, is it's true to believe that fortune often favors the bold in this world. That's a true thing. You can oftentimes get what you want by being bold. But here's the problem with this. Even though this approach is inspiring, it's important to see that it still doesn't solve the problem of the inevitability of, of dealing with suffering in this world. Paul's prison guards did not care how self-actualized he was. Neither did the Roman authorities. We know from church history that many of those who, in, who were emboldened by Paul to speak boldly of the gospel of Jesus Christ, as he talks about here, were also imprisoned and also put to death for their faith. So even though it led to some really beautiful things, it also led to suffering. And the cycle continued. 
Moreover, because this approach is rooted in the self and our own ability to be bold, our own ability to kind of pick ourselves up, it can be incredibly fragile. And as a result, instead of resulting in joy, it often leads to selfishness and pride. Envy, rivalry, and comparison, exactly what we see happening in our passage. Paul points out that there are those who are responding to him in love, in proclamation, but those who are responding in envy and pride and doing the same thing in order to hurt him, right? And so you see this cycle going on here as well. And this makes sense. Theodore Roosevelt once said that comparison is the thief of joy. Rivalry in this way is the thief of joy. And the reason many motivational speakers are actually really terrible people, and you know this to be true because you've seen the movies, you've seen the cultural things, Oftentimes, the people that are the most successful of being really inspirational people, you know, and speakers in this world, if you really see their inner lives and see what's going on behind the scenes, they are terrible people. Terrible people. And they're driven by selfishness. They're driven by pride in a way that's actually really destructive. And as a result of this, it actually leads us to a third strategy that our culture often pursues, and that's just positive thinking. The logical failure of these first two approaches has led many to take an approach of thinking that we can just be positive about the things that we engage with, that everything will be all right. Positive thinking movie teaches that all evil and suffering and physical illness in this world are just illusions generated by negative thinking. And if you think that that's ridiculous, it is one of the, the highest grossing industries in our entire country. If you go to a bookstore, and I know that there are not many left in this world, but if you actually go to a bookstore, the self-help kind of positive thinking section is enormous. It's enormous. And so what they say in the midst of this is if you want to have joy, all you need to do is change your mental attitude and realize that these things are just an illusion that you can control in your life. When life gives you lemons, you make lemonade, Right? When life throws an obstacle at you, you see it as an opportunity. When life is dark, you look at the bright side. Now again, at first glance, this sounds really great. And it actually can lead to some good things. Like it's better to be positive sometimes, right? It's better to be kind of a positive person. If you're just negative, you're down all the time, you know, it, it, it will have consequences to it. And it looks like what Paul is doing here. If you look here in verse 12, he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. It looks like Paul is just looking on the bright side and saying, look at the positive things that have come from this difficult situation. It looks like he's being overly positive in this way. But here's the problem with this view. Research has actually proven that this strategy can backfire if our positivity isn't rooted in reality and confirmed by our actual experiences in this world. In fact, there is absolutely no evidence, and, I, and I, you don't have to take my word for this. You can actually research this on Google. There, many, many people have talked about the fact that there is absolutely no evidence that there is power in positive thinking, that there is actually no result that comes to this in any kind of good way. And as a result, it can lead to this kind of reality of being disconnected from reality that is ultimately disillusioning and leads to more suffering. And that's exactly what happens. You know, I had a conversation with, you know, as a pastor, when I fly, it's always a fascinating experience because uh, usually uh, if you sit down next to somebody on the plane, you know, you have that kind of like moment in the beginning where you're like, you say hi and like, what did you do? Um, but, you know, normally people, you know, it's just kind of stuff that you kind of roll off. When I say that I'm a pastor, there are two things that happen. 
right? One is that they kind of go, oh, and then I get to read for the rest of the flight. <laughs> and the other thing that happens is they go, oh, and then they ask me every question that they've ever had about religion, which also is great, right? You know, and I had an experience of kind of sitting next to a woman on a plane uh, a couple years ago, and when she found out that I was a pastor, she began to tell me about how she was learning about the importance of positive thinking and reading all these self-help books. And when I asked her if she found this advice to be helpful, she said, not really. <laughs> and then we both laughed, and we had a good conversation about why, right? And the truth is, yet we keep hearing about this over and over again. And the question is why? Perhaps it has something to do with the fact that negative beliefs about the self and our world and the future can lead to anger and anxiety and depression. And to feel better about ourselves, feel better about the world that we're in, it seems reasonable to turn to optimistic things instead of pessimistic things. And sometimes positive beliefs like this actually work, like I said, and actually lead to successful outcomes. But the reality is that these beliefs just as often lead to disappointing outcomes and despair and disillusionment. And when this happens, the research has shown that we can come, become even more confused and frustrated and even more despairing and joyless than we were in the beginning. And this is especially true when we realize that once again, this approach doesn't solve ultimately the problem that all of us are going to experience suffering in this world. Suffering is real and pretending that it's not or that you can throw, get rid of it by positive thinking is the illusion itself. You need to understand that. That is the illusion. Try telling someone um, on a ventilator dying of COVID over the last couple of years that what they're experiencing in their suffering is just an illusion. Try telling someone uh, whose child is starving to death in Kenya right now due to the food shortages that are happening because of the war in Ukraine, that that's just an illusion. Try telling somebody in the war in Ukraine that their, their family, whose family has died, that their children have been, you know, uh, killed by bombings, that that's just an illusion. Being positive isn't a bad thing, but it must be rooted in reality. It must be rooted in the reality, not only of the good things in this world, but that suffering exists and that evil is real, as Aaron talked about earlier. And the reality is that suffering is in all of our lives. The illusion is our cultural belief that we can avoid it or get rid of it through self-empowerment or make it go away through positivity. But if this is true, then the question is, where do we go from here? How do we actually have joy? If none of this stuff works, then where are we supposed to go to actually have the hope of real joy in this world? And the biblical answer that we find is that we can't find true and lasting joy in this world. Did you hear that? You cannot find true and lasting joy in this world. Again, that's something in our culture that makes absolutely no sense because we tend to believe, as the philosopher Charles Taylor has said, that we live in an imminent frame and that everything that exists is in our current, present reality. And if that's true, then all happiness and joy must come from the things that I engage with right here and right now. But according to the Bible, that is not true. That is not true. There is something greater. And that something greater is calling us to recognize 
where the source of our real joy is, is at. C.S. Lewis, in his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, tells the story of how he spent his entire life from a very young child pursuing the idea of joy, pursuing getting joy in his life. And his earliest memories of joy were connected to his mother, but she tragically, as he says in the book, was taken away from him at an early age, and it broke his heart. So he binged on things that he found in this world that gave him happiness. The first time he read an Icelandic saga, he absolutely loved it. So he read literally every Icelandic saga that you could get your hands on, both in the English and in the original languages, because he was a smart dude, right? And so he just poured himself into these things. But over time, he realized that it was not paying out the way that he had hoped. So he went out and got friends. And he poured himself into those friends, but eventually those friends backed off because he was too intense. So uh, he looked for other things, but no matter what he looked for and how he looked for them, he discovered that there was really no true joy in them. And they always seemed to evade him And the joy that he looked for in them seemed to be stolen away by suffering and by the circumstances of his life. However, when he became a Christian, he came to realize something that changed everything. Everything in his life. That through the gospel of Jesus Christ, true joy cannot be found in the things of this world. The things of this world, while good in and of themselves, and we're told that in the scriptures, are only conduits or signposts pointing forward to the true source of our joy. This is why when you treat them as a source, the joy that you see in them always vanishes like a mirage when you get close. Or when you finally get that thing, you may experience it for just a moment, but then it fades away. I guarantee you that that has happened to every one of you here today. It happens to me all the time. And it is what most of us in our culture spend our entire lives doing, right? jumping from rock to rock, chasing those glimpses of joy that we see in things, constantly looking for new opportunities and new ways to have that fix of joy. But every time we get it, every time we experience it, before we even get our hands around it, it's gone. And it fades away. And the Bible says that the reason for this is that those things in and of themselves are not the source of joy. Even the good things that you have. They only point forward to the reality of what, they reflect the reality of what our true source of joy is all about. And the gospel in this way awakened Lewis to an understanding of God that led him to know that God himself was the true source of joy. Real joy, according to the scriptures, can, be found, can not only be found in God, uh, it's not just that we have joy by experiencing him in this world, What the scriptures actually say is that he is joy. It is actually one of his fundamental attributes, like love and justice. And that's that's really a helpful thing to kind of wrap your minds around. If God is the very foundation, if he is the context, if he is the very source of all joy in this world, if he himself, by his very nature, is joy, then only in him can we find joy, all right? And everything else, the joy that we see in everything else, is just reflecting a little bit of what the true source is all about. And that's exactly what Lewis came to understand. And it was this realization that led Lewis uh, to the answer to the question of how Christianity can offer real joy in this world. You see, Christian joy is not based on your circumstances. It's not based on your circumstances. 
If you base your joy on your circumstances, your joy will only last as long as your circumstances. Christian joy is based in God. And because God is infinite internal, if your joy is in him, your joy is also infinite and internal. Your joy is also infinite and internal. You see, according to the Bible, suffering is not the opposite of joy. The opposite of joy is despair. And despair is the consequence of putting our hope and putting our joy in the wrong source of joy. And it's this despair that is at the very heart of the brokenness of our world today. The Bible tells us this. In the beginning of time, our first parents, they sinned against God, they rebelled against God as the source of their joy, and they sought to be their own gods. They sought to find their joy rooted in themselves instead of serving the one true and living God, their creator. But instead in life and flourishing and joy, what they got is brokenness. And they got separated from the true source of their joy. And therefore they started running to find that source of joy because we're made for it and we long for it and we desire it in every aspect of our lives. They tried to seek after it in all kinds of other things and we've been doing the same thing ever since. That's why you are constantly trying to find these things in your family, in your job, in the things that you can buy, in the bigger house, in the vacation that you go on. You can, name, you can insert anything you want into that gap, into that slot, but that's why you are constantly chasing after those things, but you're never finding the joy that you want in them. Because we have been separated from the true source of our joy. But that's not the end of the story. The gospel goes on to tell us the good news that Jesus Christ, joy himself, who is God, came into this world to offer us salvation and a way to be restored to the true source of our joy. But he didn't do it by avoiding suffering or brokenness. One of the beauties of the scriptures, I would argue, is that Christianity in its fundamental nature is not something that ignores, glosses over, or tries to sweep under the rug the reality of suffering in this world. In fact, it is unbelievably clear and realistic about the brokenness of these things, more so than anything else in the world. But it has a solution that is just as powerful. He did not come to sweep these things under the rug. He did not come to, be, uh, to give you a five-step self-help program. He did not come uh, to empower you to control your lives uh, to save yourself, to avoid flourishing. Jesus is not your life coach. He is not your therapist. The scriptures say that he is your savior. And unless you come to that realization, you will never find the joy that you're longing for. Jesus did this by entering in and bearing the brunt of our suffering on himself. By substituting himself in our place and bearing the full weight of our sins and rebellion against God. That is the thing that separated us from God, to pay the penalty for our sins, to restore us to God, and to unite us back to the source of our joy by his grace. And the question is, why would he do this? Why would God do this? We certainly don't deserve it. So why would he do it? You know, one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture is Hebrews 12. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. You know what the joy that was set before him 
was that led him to endure the cross? It's you and me. You are God's joy. You are the object of his desire. And for you, he was willing to sacrifice his joy. He died on the cross. And when we're told the kind of the intricate workings of what it meant for Jesus to die on the cross is that the suffering that he experienced was not really the physical suffering, as bad as that was. It was the fact that in that moment, because he bore the weight of our sin, he was separated from God. He was separated from the source of joy for you and me so that we could be reunited to the source of our joy. This doesn't mean that you and I won't experience suffering anymore in this world. You will. We are promised that in the scriptures. But when your joy is in Christ, it will overwhelm your sorrow, we're told, because the reality of understanding the wonder of what Christ has done for us. Tim Keller talks about it this way. He says that when you understand the nature of real joy, in a real God, in the midst of a broken world, what happens is when you experience suffering, the gospel kicks in like a heater on a cold day. And it gives you the warmth in the gospel. And it brings joy into your life that exists even in the midst of the suffering that you're experiencing. And this is exactly what we see here in our passage. Paul's joy here is not rooted in himself or his own self-confidence, or his circumstances, it's rooted in God and his confidence in Jesus' love. And as a result, he is enabled to rejoice, even in the midst of great suffering, and the terrible circumstances that he is in. Because the object of his desire is God, not his own comfort. And he knows that because of Jesus, the joy he now possesses in God can never be taken away. Because he's rooted in an absolutely unchangeable object of his desire. And as a result, he is empowered to rejoice in the positive outcomes of his suffering. He's able to see the good things that come out of that, not because he's trying to avoid the suffering itself, but because he can rejoice in that because of the gospel. You can see this here in verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Soldiers are hearing about Christ, he says. Believers are being emboldened to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ and to face suffering themselves without fear because he knows that suffering is not the opposite of joy and he also knows that the suffering of this world is not the end of the story. Moreover, he is enabled to even rejoice in the fact that the gospel is being proclaimed by those who desire to harm him and inflict harm upon him with envy and selfish ambition because he knows that it's not about him or his pride or his abilities or his worth or the worth of the vessels that are actually proclaiming the good news of the gospel and advancing God's kingdom. God has been using crooked sticks from the beginning of time to draw straight lines. Do you know that? And Paul here knows that he's as crooked as they come. And as a result, instead of leading him to despair, it fills him with incredible joy to see Christ proclaimed no matter what the other people are doing. And so he rejoices in the proclamation of the gospel. And this should cause us all here to rejoice as well. Because the proclamation of joy that I'm giving you from this passage this moment, morning is not based in me. I can tell you that I'm as sinful and as broken and as crooked as they come as well. 
And thanks be to God that it's not based on me or my strength or who I am that these things are true. And this should cause us to rejoice. Nor is it dependent on you and your circumstances here this morning. We're all experiencing a season of incredible suffering, of incredible discouragement, of incredible kind of upheaval in our lives right now. But the good news of the gospel is that we do not have to despair. The good news of the gospel is the truth and reality of this joy is dependent on the love of God and not on us. And he has proven his love to us in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's proven his love and that he gave everything for you so that you might come to know the true joy of what it is to know him. And that is good news. Do you know this joy? I would really encourage you to ponder on these things this week. This is incredibly important to kind of wrap your heads around. When you begin to start to understand that the things of this world are just reflections of joy, it changes everything about how you see them. It doesn't get rid of the enjoyment that you can have in them. It actually increases the enjoyment that you have in them because you begin to see the reality that they are just reflecting a little glimpse of the wonder of our God. And that leads us to maturity. It leads us to strength. It leads us to pursue the things that the Lord has called us to in wonderful ways based on the working of the Holy Spirit and the gospel. That knit us together as God's people and send us out into this world to actually show that joy to the world that desperately needs it. And that is a gift in and of itself. I am so thankful to be in this with you, to be on this mission with you, and let's pray now that the Lord actually knits these things into our hearts in such a way that binds our community, molds us in this joy, so that we would become a community of joy to the watching world and to our neighborhood. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We confess, Lord, that we are not only sinful and broken in some kind of abstract sense, we are sinful and broken in the how we view joy. Lord, we can't even have joy in the right way. And Lord, I pray that this passage would mold our hearts, shape our lives, drive us to find our joy in you. I pray that the gospel would be at so at work in my life and the life of everyone here this morning that it would open our eyes to see clearly and to understand fully the wonder of what you've done. And that you, O oh Lord, would mold us as a people in that together to actually experience real joy in this world, not just happiness, not just comfort, but real joy in you. And that through that, Lord, that you would use us as your people to share this joy with our neighborhood in East Nashville and to our city and to this world. And that many, many people, oh Lord, would come to know the joy that we have been given in you. Can't do this on our own, Lord, but we know that you can and we know that you want to. So we ask that you would. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.